0: Welcome to Three Devs and a Maybe, the podcast series for beginner web developers and general web enthusiasts. Now introducing your show hosts, Michael Budd, Fraser Hart, Lewis Keynes, and Ed Mann. Hello and welcome to another episode of Three Devs and a Maybe. My name's Ed Mann and today we are very lucky to be joined by Matthias Guignard. How you doing, Matthias?
1: i'm fine ed how are you
0: i'm very good thank you um just so uh, before we said uh, what we're doing off air so speaking of off air was uh the the sound of your microphone is great and it's all my fault for you to be getting a yeti so i will take that blame
1: <laughs> that, does that also mean that i can send you the invoice or is that still on me
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's a th- yeah, three day de- exactly yeah three devs and are maybe uh we're giving out microphones <laughs>
1: Now, I've been thinking of buying a Yeti a long time. Uh, It was on sale about three or four weeks ago, I think, uh, on Amazon, and I thought, hey, why not? This is the perfect time to get one. And
0: you're enjoying it. Have you been able to use it much in your day job and things like that at the moment, or is it really just for, like, podcasting and things?
1: Uh, I've just gotten it out of the box. This is the first time I'm using it. Oh, wow. Oh, brilliant. We'll see how this goes.
0: Fresh new Yeti. Very nice. Um, Yeah, so uh, for the audience, so essentially um, another thing that kind of has been, well, I mean, everyone should know, actually. Well, this is the web development podcast. And obviously HTTP2, um, has, I suppose, has it been finalized? It's, it's been released. It's been kind of around for a while now, but is it officially the spec being released?
1: There have been a number of, well, predecessors to HTTP2. We've had the speedy protocol for a very long time that uh, Google initiated. Um, the final draft, the, the final version of HTTP2, um, um is effectively out. It's been out for a couple of months now, if if almost a year, I think. Um, so yes, it's final. HTTP two is here, and it's here to stay.
0: Well, hey, and uh, yeah. So about well, really, you know, it's kind of a great time to kind of look into this now by being web developers. And and one one of the things, I obviously, typical running theme through these podcasts is I say I go on the blog, you know go on the Google search for you know good resources, and your your name comes up all the time for this stuff, and I really enjoy your blog. Um, so I thought you know, let's give it a shot, try and get you on. You were really nice to come on the show. And yeah, let's geek out and talk about HTTP2, I thought, which would be a really cool topic.
1: Oh yeah, it's definitely one of my favorite topics. Um, I've been blogging and giving presentations about it for quite some time. I'm glad to hear that you're finding my blog and that you're even finding it useful.
0: Oh, absolutely. Um, <laughs> oh, it's a great blog. I mean, you talk at so many different things like Varnish and general PHP things and yeah, the Unix, sysadmin stuff. And I suppose actually, yeah, talking about like that kind of DevOps, like how did you get into programming and DevOps? Like how did you get into the position you're currently at?
1: Well, it's, started as me being uh, 13 14 years i don't know um playing around with php which is now about 15 years ago so i'm i'm talking about an ancient php version um, but when I was 14, I thought, hey, what if I start to get into programming? Um, maybe I could start a website at my school and maybe I could start the kind of website that allows us to exchange homeworks. So only one person has to make it, you can upload it, and all the, uh, the well, entire school can get use of <laughs> it. Um, <laughs> so yeah, me being a lazy programmer, I spent a lot of time programming, not that lazy. Um, but I got into PHP that way. There was a very fun way to get, um, hooked into it. I, I taught it to myself. Um, but this was PHP four, I think. So nothing object oriented, just plain procedural, one line after the other. Um, still readable actually. So yeah, <laughs> big up for uh, uh plain old PHP. Um, but that's how I got started. Um, then I went into just all well, studying uh, programming, um, system administration, etc. Um, then I got into well work. Um. Started as a PHP developer at Nucleus, um, there's a hosting provider in Belgium, we do cloud hosting and everything else. Um, started as a PHP guy, slowly started to manage my own servers, Um now I'm just the server guy, no longer the PHP guy.
0: Did you miss the PHP uh, role, or do you love the DevOps side?
1: I still love it. I, I still, well, officially I'm not a PHP developer, but I still write PHP, either in side projects or just to automate something simple as a command line, which Bash is limited at. Um, php is my go-to language to get anything done
0: yeah because i i do actually feel like a php is underrated in that kind of thing you know they just the command line scripts you can make with it and quickly whip up things did you say that'd be a bit more advanced than what bash does i mean again people will show you bash commands and awk commands and all these things that would do the same thing but for readability yeah I, I i go to php as like my tool for like these little scripts
1: same and i think it's just personal preference if i were to get started in say python i well, no doubt my go-to language would have That's... been Python. Um, so it's a means to an end. You automate something to get something done. It doesn't really matter which language you use.
0: That's it. Absolutely. It does its job. Um and, and so how long have you been doing the DevOps stuff then as opposed to primarily the PHP programming side?
1: It sort of depends what you think of as DevOps, it's, it's a wide term and everybody's using it in its own yep. interpretation. <laughs> um, if, if I'm looking at DevOps as something like the typical definition of infrastructure as code, um, I think it's about four or five years now. Um, but DevOps is more than just writing your server infrastructure in code. It's also automation. It's just getting things done in a way that's uh, maintainable, that you can the
0: architecture around yeah, it. Yeah. Everything. So much more indeed. Stuff. Yeah. Absolutely. And I suppose, uh, uh, what kind of stack then do you run currently at, at your work? Are you able to speak about, talk about that a little bit?
1: Um, at our work, we do everything in Puppet. Um, Puppets our config management choice, um, which we made about four years ago, I think. And back then, there weren't that many alternatives. I think if we were to reevaluate today, I'm pretty sure Puppet would still be in the top, but it may not be the, the answer today. I think with Chef and Ansible, um, seriously catching up, um, it, it could have been a different, uh, the definition at the end. Um, but hey, we're running Puppet. Um, we're doing it all the time. Um, all our servers are from beginning to end automated with Puppet. So I spend most of my days at the command line, um, in a text editor, writing Puppet modules, manifests, um, everything like that. And where possible, um, writing scripts in either PHP or bash or anything just to automate everything.
0: That's awesome. And, and how do you find Puppet? Like, as you say, like, there's the other ones, you know, Chef and Anstable. And, you know, Puppet was kind of one of the first, it was that Chef and Anstable, uh, sorry, Chef and Puppet seem to be the first kind of foray into it. And then Anstable's come on the scene. Um, so what would what you prefer? Did you like the way, how declarative Puppet is and the way that it, it kind of, it's thought pattern?
1: Oh, well, I'm glad that Puppet wasn't the first one. It's, it's, um, had its older brother with CF Engine, um, which, I think originally came from Facebook. Um it, It's had the opportunity to learn from other config managements and implement the good parts and just improve where possible. Um, that said, I think Puppet has a very large um barrier of entry. It takes a while to get anything done in Puppet, but once you get the hang of it, the syntax, the idea that, that yeah. it's not top to bottom, there are dependencies, um, it's modular. Once you get your head around that, it's a very powerful language and you get a lot of things done. But if you're just managing one or two servers, I think something like Ansible is way easier to get started in.
0: But that's yeah, I mean, personal preference, I think. Well, so. no, I think, yeah, I think you're right there. It's, a, it's taken me quite a while to kind of get that thinking across. And as you say, the building up, you know, the idea of what Puppet is as opposed to Ansible, which is got probably better, you know, like quicker time to getting stuff done that, you know, it would work, whereas opposed to Puppet is really, you know, a way of thinking as opposed to anything else.
1: Yeah, and I think if, you're looking at an infrastructure that's, that is growing or that has just reached a couple of hundred servers. I think something like Puppet makes more sense because there's a lot of dependencies you can script you. There's more interaction, more modular approach to everything. Whereas Ansible, I've, I've not um, professionally worked with Ansible, just in my playtime. Um, I think Ansible is very powerful, but starts to show its bottlenecks pretty soon, whereas Puppet just mildly goes further it's more scalable to my opinion but that's well a tainted opinion because i'm okay. using puppet not ansible.
0: <laughs> no, that, that's really interesting and and i mean so i, I spoke a bit a little bit about it but i say your blog and I, as i said i really enjoy the, you know reading your blog and what what you kind of get out to and all you have all these different experiments and kind of you know different good tutorials and things and i just wondering how long have you been doing uh, have you long been blogging and like you know, kind of that as an outlet
1: i started blogging um, the moment i started working um it started a bit of uh, as a personal tool that I needed. Um When I started working, which is now about nine years ago, I think, we didn't really have a wiki or documentation. So I started documenting for myself. And I figured that this is a good way to get to know, well, the web, uh, WordPress, anything that's blogging related. So I just started writing my own documentation on my blog. And that just sort of never stopped. <laughs> um, so I've been blogging on and off for seven or eight years. I, t- I took a couple of sabbaticals, um just some time off because, well, if you're writing all the time, you either get a writer's block or it just doesn't uh, interest you anymore. So absolutely,
0: yeah, it's been a bit off and on. But no, I think mean, I say the content's all there still, and it's great content. Um, and so from that, you know, from uh, reading your blog and stuff, there was one thing I noticed. As you say, you you done a presentation on the topic of for the show, really, is, is HTTP two. And I thought, you know, it'd be great to kind of, I mean, we all know HTTP. I think we all kind of have an idea about it, but really kind of go strip it bare, see what's like, you know, what it really is, and then kind of build up the build like work and build up building blocks of, you know, each of the different parts, you know, the history of it, the story behind it. And I know that you went through that in the presentation, I'll put that in the show notes. You did like a presentation for a local PHP user group. Um so Yeah,
1: indeed. Um I've given it a couple of times now, as well as at uh, a Drupal conference. Um it's well, it's an interesting topic to to keep talking about. So it's, uh, I, I like giving that presentation as well. Um, you mentioned that most of us, well, that are in the web development know HTTP. It's from my experience. I've noticed that a lot of people think they know HTTP. Um, but really getting the protocol, really understanding what's happening, that seems to be, well, for some tricky. Um, and I, I've been like, I lately I've been enjoying um, teaching or educating everyone about what is this protocol. And if you upgrade to HTTP 2, what are the advantages and what's what bottlenecks are you hitting, et cetera? Um, it, it's a fun topic to keep talking about.
0: That's brilliant. Well, I mean, suppose for the first question is then, is what actually is HTTP?
1: Well, it's a client-server protocol. So it's basically what has been powering the web. It's, without HTTP, we wouldn't be having an, not the internet that we have today. Um, it's safe to say that 80 or 90% of all traffic on the internet is probably related to HTTP. Torrents beside. Um, so it's, the, it's the protocol that the web has been built on. It's what makes, uh, breaks the, the new companies that arise. Um, it's, it's a simple protocol, um, in theory. You send a request to a server. You add some headers to describe what you want to see. Server does its magic and gives you a response back that also includes headers just to describe what kind of response you're getting. Um, and that's the gist of it. You send headers with a request. You get a response with headers that describe the kind of response you're getting.
0: And, and originally this was, this was like the introduced by Tim Berners-Lee. Um, and I think that like the first, it was dot 0.9 was released in 97 as a standard eventually. I think. I yeah. I think. Yeah.
1: Somewhere around mid 90s, um, the first drafts or the first standards indeed emerged. Um, not that much later, um, the first iterations of the standard emerged. Um, we've been, well, the current uh, version of HTTP, what we're seeing mostly is 1.1. Um, but that's been around for on and off 20 years, I think um so we've that been quite, yeah that's quite a very a, long time
0: that's it yeah because i was saying like thinking how frequently the updates are and it doesn't seem that there are that many updates within you know you just say like the last version is 1999 or something like that where we're, we're using now and not a lot of i mean the web's changed certainly the way sorry the, the way that we use the internet's changed but the fundamental protocol hasn't, so it's quite interesting to say, like they're then going to you know, be able to like kind of think what is going to be in HTTP two, like HTTP two. And what well, was there was there a lot of innovation throughout like the time from when one point one was released to two, or has it really been like only the last couple of years that they've started thinking we now need to really think about this?
1: Well, we have had a lot. We have had a lot of RFCs that detail the nitty-bitty details of HTTP 1.1. We've had RFCs that um, optimize the use of cookies or ad- additional headers that um, servers can uh, can use. But really, the protocol itself really hasn't changed. Um, that had numerous reasons, but it mostly had as a result that we as developers or sysadmins started to get creative. Um, so we've been working with a protocol that's, that's 20 years old, um, but we're trying to do... New things. We're trying to push this internet, this web to a new level, um, which is hard if you're working with tools that have been designed 20 years ago without a notion of the scale that well, the internet is yeah, running they, at. They
0: weren't uh, thinking this was going to be the problem that they're meant to be solving. They were solving their problem at that time. They never could have envisioned what it's become.
1: Oh, and if you imagine what the internet must have been like 20 years ago, I, it's nothing like what it is today. Um, the, the amount of traffic, the amount of requests per second that you're seeing, it's, it's mind boggling, but it, it's in no way comparable to what, what, what happened 20 years ago. Um, so we've had this, well, this standard, it which was a pretty decent standard, but it had its limitations. Um, I've mentioned cookies already. Cookies is one of those hacks on a hack. Um, which has lasted. It. Um, it's done its thing for the last 20 years. It's still here in HTTP2, of course. Um, but that was us being creative, being thinking outside of the box of what we, can we do and what limitations are we having that we can solve with something like additional headers. Um, and that's exactly what we've been doing lately. So really in
0: the confines of what the protocol already yep. describes. Yeah. Cause I mean, cause that's another thing. People like have HTTP and then you've got something like TCP. Um, and I'm just wondering if you don't mind, like, kind of explaining the differences between that. Cause people do, I, I've known, like, people to kind of get confused by that and not work, like, what layers kind of that they work at.
1: Well, we go back to the basics. If you're looking at that, um, we've got the OZ layer, um, which is, well, if you've done any, any kind of, um, high school, middle school, college, no matter what, if you've looked at any of the programming or sysadmin courses, the OZ oh, yeah. layer is there. It's a uh, seven layers, a seven step layer that describes from the cable that you're plugging into a server to the applications that are actually using it uh, and anything in between. Um, if you're thinking of TCP or UDP or any of those low-level protocols, um, you're actually looking at layer four of the matter. It's a transport layer, which is just designed to get packets from A to B in a structural way. If you're looking at HTTP, you're looking at layer seven, which is several layers above. So you're when you're actually doing HTTP requests from, say, your browser to, say, Facebook, Um, what happens in the background is a lot. You've got presentation layers, session layers, you've got TCP going on, you've got um, ARP addresses, MAC addresses, IPs, uh, you've got physical layers going over switches and routers and firewalls. I keep saying this, but it's a miracle that the internet today works. <laughs> there are so yeah. many things in between.
0: <laughs> it is a crazy thing, and and with that, then so you've got HTTP, you've got TCP, and the the and one point one, as you say, it's been around for so long, and and we really have kind of developed a lot of in quote best practices for one point one that you know really kind of. Again, hacks upon hacks or, you know, working within the confines. And one of the one of the funniest of this well the well, funniest, but one of the most interesting and really the most hacky is like something called like domain sharding. And I'm just wondering if you could maybe explain that and, and what that tries to solve within the problem of HTTP two uh, HTTP one point one.
1: Yeah, sure. Um what domain sharding is, is basically um you are spreading the HTTP requests that you have to make in order to get a website to work. So I'm looking at images, JavaScript, uh, CSS files, um, even video files. If you browse a website, let's take Facebook.com for example, if you browse it, your browser, your Firefox or your Chrome will start at most four or six simultaneous connections to Facebook. That means if you're loading Facebook, um, it's notorious for images, CSS, JavaScript. You've probably doing in the background around a 100 requests just to get the page to load wow what your browser is doing is buffering them or well not buffering them it's it's using a concurrency of four to eight connections so it's uh, launching a request for the first say eight http requests requests it's waiting for them to come back and then it's doing the next h requests and then the next H. um which if you're doing it all on one domain is it terribly slow. If you've got one very big image or a video or anything, it's blocking a connection that cannot be used for anything else. Domain sharding is one of those hacks that we developed just to get around that. Um, it's where instead of just going to facebook.com, you're going to cdn1.facebook.com for your images, cdn2.facebook.com for your static contents like JavaScript, etc. And you're basically tricking your browser into thinking that it's connecting to multiple different web servers, so it would open up more concurrent connections
0: because there's that limit isn't there as you say of how many tcp connections can be open per domain and then, and then you say this is just working out okay let's just say no pretend you know like let's just yeah a, a, the illusion that you using you, you've got more than more domains than you know actually really do indeed and it,
1: it came from the idea that there is a chance that these resources that you're requesting are actually hosted on different servers. Let's say they're actually on a content delivery network, that it would make sense to open more connections to that side. Um In many of the big websites, that is in fact the case. You're, you're not just connecting to one web server, it's 10 or more in the background. Um, but we have also been using this technique on smaller websites just to get a feel of snappiness and get a feel of faster response times when loading a website. So we've been abusing this system, um, for better or worse, um, by, well, sharding by adding subdomains that effectively refer to the same server and the same V host even just to get the content to load.
0: <laughs> and then and along with that is things like file concatenation and, um, and inlining. And it's very interesting because, yeah, I mean, part of a good, okay, best practice, you know, development flow is, you know, you, 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 you know, you're doing your development and then you package it up, you minify it, you concatenate all your files, your CSS, you concatenate your JavaScript, and hopefully you only have one JavaScript file, and one CSS file along with the actual HTML, you know, uh, page to go down the wire to the user. Um, I'm just wondering, like, File concatenation. Why? Why was that? Why is that such a big deal than having like, let's just say, loads more? You know, all these individual files.
1: Well, if you're a developer, you prefer your code, whether that's PHP code or Ruby code or your JavaScript code, to be modular, to have a logical separation. That means if you're writing JavaScript code, say, um, you probably don't want one big monolithic file, you want multiple files just to have it easier to work with. Um Now, that's great for developers. It, it's easy for them to work with more structure to their code, but it's not that fun for browser because if you need to request 20 JavaScript files, if we keep that concurrency in mind, they'll only be requested per four, per six, per eight. Um So that's why tools like um, a lot of build tools have been developed to concatenate all of those files to keep your code modular into a big JavaScript file so that your browser, what your client is requesting, only needs to make one HTTP request. The advantage is obvious that you just need one HTTP request. Um, the disadvantage is that it may also be loading JavaScript files and content that may not even be needed on that particular page that are just inside of the big monolithic JavaScript file. Um, and they're just sent through the wire um, just to have your browser only use one connection.
0: That is insane, though, that, you know, you could think that actually downloading more content just because of the fact that the connect- taking, you know, having that connection be created and negotiating all that is actually more expensive. And I suppose this is things, again, like in these 20 years that we've kind of had to weigh up where it's like, OK, do we have another file or do we just connect- concatenate it to that, even if it's not getting used? And it's exactly. all these hacks, yeah. yeah.
1: It goes even further than that, actually. Um, if we're looking at, say, the compression algorithms used to get data from server to client, um, you can achieve a bigger compression ratio if you have very big text files because there's a chance that you can um, compress those text files even bigger that if you have, say, two or three big ones, um, your compression ratio won't be as big. So there's a, a very difficult trade-off between... How many concurrent connections do I want to start? Do I want to sacrifice another TCP connection for this? What is my compression ratio if I split them up or keep them in one file? There are so many things getting uh, getting mixed up in there that f- for every application, it's almost a unique challenge to get the best performance out of it.
0: It's insane. And as you said, another one is inlining um, because that is even just within the payload of the HTML payload itself that you're including mm-hmm. all this other content. Uh, which can't be cached you know really but it's because of the fact that you then don't have to have this tcp connection created and used
1: exactly and that's again the trade-off it's about making a sacrifice between performance on the one hand and maintainability as a developer on the other hand inlining is great for performance in the sense that, well, you have the CSS straight away, your browser can render it straight away. It doesn't need to wait for either another CSS file or yet another include in that CSS file. It just has its markup. It can render it straight away. Um, which is something that browsers like, but as you mentioned, it sort of sacrifices caching because there is no CSS file to cache if you're because inlining. You just don't everything.
0: know, do you? No. Uh, and, and so, with all these trade offs and they have been all these decisions throughout the twenty years, and now HTTP two's come on the scene, and I'm just wondering, what does then HTTP two bring along with its set of predecessors? Like, how, how has it grown in what it wants to Try and solve
1: it solves everything basically we are out of a job uh, http2 is here and uh, every problem <laughs> that we gone, the had is done
0: yeah. finished projects over
1: yeah. so uh, we can wrap off. yeah uh, <laughs> been nice talking to you <laughs> now http2 is um for what it's worth it's both a very big change and a very small step um i mean that by well let's look at http2 for starters um the currently most popular protocol is still the plain HTTP 1.1 that we're all using, Um, it's been around for 20 years, and it's just the plain text protocol, because back then we only had plain text. HTTP 2.0 is no longer a plain text protocol, it's a binary protocol, which essentially means for us as developers, we probably won't notice that, but if you're into low-level debugging, what that effectively means is you cannot telnet to a server write some http commands and expect a response because the protocol requires something that is binary um you can't well, unless you're uh, some kind of guru you can't really write binary code um, <laughs> yeah unless so, you could
0: be able to do that in your head that would be pretty impressive yeah
1: i think you're hired by google <laughs> uh, <laughs> even then um no, the, the, so that's one of the biggest changes one no longer plain text. Everything so is. D-
0: why binary. is that then? What, what, what was, why was the decision made to go from a textual representation to binary?
1: Well, it's because of an ancient problem that they've been trying to solve. The concurrent connection issue in browsers. Um, what that means is each connection that you're loading, each, each, each HTTP request, each JavaScript file, whatever, um, is another TCP connection that you're opening. You can't, um, optimize that if the protocol remains plain text. What that means is um, in HTTP2, everything's binary, but that also means that over one TCP connection, we can actually send and request multiple different resources. So that's what HTTP2 is bringing. It, it introduced a concept of what is called multiplexing. It opens one TCP connection to the web server. So your client only has one TCP connection to a web server, but over that stream, They can uh, request multiple files, so they can request the homepage, some JavaScript files, some images, all over a single TCP connection. That means a lot less overhead on the TCP level, a lot less stress on the web servers for handling all those TCP connections, and a more efficient way of requesting and responding, um, but at the cost of no longer being a plain text protocol
0: so that's really interesting then that you know uh, i mean what's great about this is that as you say the domain sharding then to me makes it's almost like that can go away that problem you know i mean uh, you will still have as you say physical different locations on servers if you're very big companies and things but this kind of you know hack that we did where we would have the same te- you know virtual host even but it's just different domains on the outside can kind of go away because of this multiplexing
1: exactly um in fact if you're sharding at this moment and you were to upgrade to http2 um, you'd be missing out some of the biggest benefits being a single connection because each domain shard that you have even if it's in the background pointing to the same ip address still requires a different tcp connection because of another dependency on http2 being it's all tls encrypted um, every connection to a new domain that you open requires a new tls negotiation a new tcp connection and well you're you're missing out on the benefit of having a single TCP connection.
0: And as you say, yeah, so the domain sharding that you've actually done in the past as a, quote, best practice is now probably a anti-pattern because of the fact that it's going to be a performance hit because yeah. now of this having a single TCP connection. Exactly. And it's... I mean, with... Oh, sorry. Oh, go go ahead. I was saying with, like, with the binary protocol as well, I, I can assume... I, I've been reading up a little bit, and it feels that, that it's actually easier to pass is another reason why... Uh, you know a pro for a binary uh, kin- uh, binary protocol as opposed to just textual they're easy you know with like length encoding and things like that they're able to quickly make easier make p- parsers can be easily implemented as opposed to what it was in the textual representations
1: Exactly. It's a lot easier to parse if you are a C programmer <laughs> or anything low-level. It's incredibly hard to parse if you're a human trying to read it. Um, so just looking at the wire, let's say you're running a TCP dump on a Linux machine just to look at what packets are going back and forth. If you're looking at HTTP 2, you probably can't make sense of it. Um, whereas if you're looking at HTTP 1, which is comparable to a plain text protocol like FTP, you can just see in plain text what is going on. Um, so it's easier for developers, for, for maintainers like uh, libraries like curl or web servers, it's a lot easier to um, parse and effectively use HTTP2 correctly because, well, I said it before, HTTP 1.1 is built on hack, on hack, on hack, which means we've been uh, getting creative on the headers we've been using, um, which makes it incredibly hard to parse in a correct way.
0: And I mean, with that, then, so, so, what are the tools that we can use? Is there are there many tools out now with the, in the HTTP two landscape that allows us to kind of get back what we have lost? In essence, you know, we've been, with this discoverability, like parsers that are able to parse it and then just display like things. I'm thinking like Wireshark kind of plugins or anything like that.
1: It's uh, indeed funny you mentioned Wireshark because Wireshark has since about a month or so. Um, it's ha- it has a plugin that can decode HTTP two. Oh, awesome! <laughs> um, now, just to get you assured there even because the protocol now is binary, um, it doesn't mean that our tools are suddenly useless. Um, if we have a tool like Curl, or if you're used to looking at the um, network inspector in your browser, it's not going to look any different because your tools, in this case either Curl or the browser, will decode HTTP2 and just present it to you in the same plain text readable fashion that HTTP 1.1 has. So if you're looking at, say, your network inspector in the browser, um, you can see your request and your response headers. They'll look exactly the same in HTTP 1 versus HTTP 2. Just so behind really, the so scenes, everything's encrypted, everything's it. binary.
0: So, that, so that's the difference. So, so the difference really for a developer, a, d- a day-to-day developer, really is not that much in that regard because it's a binary. It's, so, what, I mean, I know that that's been a very much a kind of pain point for people. People are either very much for or against this binary uh, what 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 is your stance? Do you feel, are you happy with that? Or are you annoyed that you're not getting textual anymore? I don't miss it. <laughs> um,
1: <laughs> I have a lot of tools just to decrypt HTTP2 traffic. If I'm looking at, say, my Wireshark or if I'm debugging something at curl, it doesn't really matter to me if I'm looking at a old spec HTTP1 or the new HTTP2 because my tools that I've been using for the last decade all still report to me the same output that I've been using for all along. Um So it doesn't make any difference. I think even if you're a PHP developer using the curl functions, you don't need to know that your uh, endpoint that you're connection, connecting to is either HTTP 1 or 2. Um, behind the scenes, curl will do whatever it takes to make that connection work. And you as a developer just see HTTP. It doesn't really matter which version you're looking at.
0: Well, that's great. That's a really good transition then. And um, um, you you did mention the TLS connections and things like that. So a lot of uh, uh you know, like the browsers now they seem to just be supporting HTTP two just through TLS. In fact, I haven't actually seen a browser support it. You know, even though the spec says that you can support it without TLS, um, all of them seem to do TLS. Is is there a reason behind that? Is it just to say, look, everyone should be on TLS now?
1: It's mostly that. Um, we've been having a lot of privacy issues in the last years. We've had a lot of activists just promoting privacy and the security that it offers. Um, when the HTTP2 RFC was once, um, promoted and, and was in discussion, the first version of it explicitly mentioned that it should only work over TLS. So just to mention TLS is the, the next version of SSL. It's a more safer, a more, a more robust version of encryption. Um, But that idea got shot down by a lot of agencies because they felt that forcing SSL or TLS was not the place or the the RFC of HTTP2 was not the place to do that. If we wanted to promote SSL, we should have done it in a different way. So the protocol of HTTP2 does not require TLS. Having said that, um, all the browsers, Firefox, Chrome, They'll only support HTTP/2 over TLS. So the browsers have decided that TLS is in fact mandatory to run HTTP/2.
0: And that's awesome. And you know things like now the new like Let's Encrypt that's just been released out of you know into public beta now is you know it is relatively easy to get a TLS certificate and exactly. you know, be able to yeah. deal with this thing.
1: All the pieces of the puzzle seem to be coming together this year. Um At first, there was a lot of um, proponents over over the TLS decision because. If you look back two or three years ago, um, you had very cheap SSL certificates, but most of the organizations that needed one easily lost a $100 per SSL certificate, which if you're forcing that upon a, a a new standard, the new improved HTTP sounded insane. Why would you force anyone to spend even more money on SSL certificates? So things like Let's Encrypt are awesome for this. They offer free SSL certificates, or sorry, TLS certificates. Um, so you can have, even if you don't have any money, um, you can have a fully valid HTTPS website. And it's even motivated other players, other commercial players, to also have a free offering in their in their catalog. Um, so I think it's a very good move. And I think that, in part, both HTTP2 requiring TLS and just Let's Encrypt offering it for free, it's just a perfect match.
0: Yeah, so you say it's all set. It's going on the right di- in the right direction. And it seems, to, as you say, working really well at the right time where people are starting to adopt this idea of HTTP2 and TLS out and now let's encrypt now there. So that's no, really good because, yeah, the the cost, I think that's the thing where people would, would state, you know, oh, I've only got a blog. Why do I need to, Fork out money on it, you know, to to, perhaps, you know, enable to be able to use TLS, sorry, be able to use HTTP2, uh, you know, fork out money for this. And if you can get free offerings like that, because I know there have been a couple in the past that I've noticed, but I mean, one of them had a very dodgy looking website. I can't remember the name. (laughs) But, uh, you know, things like Let's Encrypt, you know, having this kind of good backing and things like that, you know, is a very nice thing to have.
1: Yeah, Um, exactly. And I think in part, HTTP2 succeeding or failing is. Driven by services like Let's Encrypt, um, because it's not only well. If you're if you're a blogger, um, you're just doing it for fun and not exactly for profit. Why would you spend thirty or forty dollars a year for a stupid SSL certificate that you may, cont- I may you may even think it's not necessary? Why would you do that if it's for free? Well, you really don't have a choice. You're, you you have to do it.
0: Because <laughs> I, 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 another actually couple of things that I noticed uh, we're doing some reading on the on the topic because um was like with TLS it was the fact that. They they found that a lot of software and hardware firewalls and antivirus software would actually block or you know remove HTTP two traffic in plain text because it wouldn't because obviously it's very different to HTTP one one point one so it wasn't able to pass this correctly and be like okay this doesn't exist so what they would do is just go through as TLS and be like oh yeah that's fine because that's traffic they couldn't actually decrypt. Uh, exactly.
1: If, if you're looking at traffic that normally flows over port 80 on a web server, um, it should be, in theory, plain text. It's, it's what a, uh, it's what is expected from the, f- uh, from the now previous version of the HTTP protocol. So you've got a lot of uh, intrusion detection systems, even firewalls indeed, that if they don't think it's plain text, they'll block it because there's probably something wrong. Um, I'm sure that has in part, uh, motivated the push to HTTPS. Yeah.
0: Cause uh, yeah, that, that, I mean, all these are wins. Having TLS is great, you know, and, and all these things that have to, you know, I'm always, lazy. cause another thing I've, I've realized and I've, I've looked up was the fact that it's like the upgrade phase and the, and the way that, you know, how do, cause how do you go from say I, how do you promote that I can do a HTTP2 connection and actually upgrade to that?
1: Well, if you're a browser, you don't know beforehand that the server that you're connecting to supports HTTP2. So what happens is for starters, you're just browsing at a website, usually on port 80. That website can say, ah, I'm not only on HTTP2 I've, or on HTTP, I'm also on the TLS version of this site, and it can redirect you to TLS. But then you're in a bit of a strut because you're connecting to a server on the same port that offers the, well, the plain text HTTP1 yeah. and HTTP2. So what browsers are doing is they're sending additional header requests to say, okay, if you support HTTP2, that would be great because I do. Um, the server can then respond with, yes, I also understand this, uh, new protocol. Let, let's do some renegotiation. Let's get HTTP2 going. From that point on, your browser can, just like it does with 301 or 302 redirects, it can cache that this server has an HTTP2, um, protocol. And the next time that you visit it, it will prefer HTTP2. It will also fall back if it's, uh, for some reason the browser or the web server no longer supports it. Um, but the first connection that you're making to a server will always be HTTP one, just because it has no idea that's that it. it's the no end side has it.
0: into it. Yeah, that's very cool. And, and talking about headers, actually, one thing that is very surprising from you know HTTP one point one was you know we, we've been able to GZIP and compress our body uh, body content, but we've never been able to compress our headers. And headers have become larger and larger. Say with the hack upon hack of cookies and things like that. Um, now we, now it seems like in HTTP2, we get header compression using HPAC, and that's a really good win.
1: Exactly. Um, something that probably wasn't envisioned 20 years ago, that something as simple as headers could at sometimes exceed 500 kilobytes, even a (laughs) megabyte worth of cookies. Because, well, right now, everybody's just placing cookies and just another cookie. Oh, let's put one more. Oh, let's try to put a lot of data in a cookie. That's, that sounds like a lot of fun. Um, but every time that you as a browser, are connecting to another page on the same site, you're sending all those cookies back and forth. And if that's not encrypted or, sorry, um, compressed, you're just wasting a lot of bandwidth because every request has all of your cookies back in them.
0: And like you say, this was not envisioned by the, the initial creation of this protocol. And that's why say, the hacks upon hacks that have added it. And now yeah. we're able to get around and say, okay, we really need header compression. Um, and another one actually I really interesting is server-side push. That that gets a little more advanced. I'm just wondering what actually is then is server-side push.
1: Well, if we look back at the beginnings, we if you're loading a website, you're loading say slash homepage, whatever. um, You're getting back the HTML. You're having to parse. Well, you I mean you as in the browser. Your browser has to parse all of the content. It has to find the references to JavaScript, it has to find references to CSS. If it's parsing CSS, it has to figure out that, oh, there are other images that I need to download. So it's putting a lot of pressure on the browser to determine the best way to request additional resources. Because if you (laughs) normally and do it as quickly as possible indeed. Um, Because if you're, say, requesting your images first, but it turns out that there's another CSS file that is overriding the properties of your previous CSS file, Maybe you're doing work that isn't even needed because your image is no longer necessary. So it was a lot of pressure on the browser to be as smart as possible to make the next request. Should the next request be CSS or JavaScript or what should I do to make it as fast as possible? Browsers have gotten really good at this, by the way, but it's not really the, the place of the browser to decide this. I think, as a developer, you would be much more happy if you, as a developer, yeah, can you say know what, what you is want, the next don't request.
0: You? Yeah, you yeah. know what you want to give them next. Like you, you know by what the project, the product, you know, the project you're working on, what is next needed.
1: You've built that website. You know that if someone is requesting the homepage, the next file should be this CSS file or this JavaScript file. If you, as a developer, could program that that would be awesome because you you you're saving the browser the work of having to decide which is the next resource Um, and that is what server-side push is actually all about it is a way to as a developer determine the next request for your web browser uh, for your uh your well your chrome or your firefox but it doesn't um offer it as say a suggestion it just sends along the data straight away that's you as a developer think that the browser might need. What does that mean? If you're loading a website, say the contact page of a particular website, you know that as a developer, the CSS file is needed. You can um, add some additional headers to your PHP code or your Ruby code to instruct your web server, your Nginx or your Apache to just send the CSS file straight away, even if your browser didn't request it yet. And this is a bit of the idea that um your browser no longer has to parse the entire dom it doesn't have to find elements that it needs to fetch it's already receiving the css file because your web server is pushing it into the browser itself
0: that's really cool Uh, that, that does give a lot of trust then to the server um you know i'm thinking there's you know that allowing them to kind of do this is can browsers typically just ignore stuff that you know they bring down or not require it if they don't want this
1: well, a browser has two ways to de- to control this. It can just say that it doesn't support server-side push and then it just doesn't receive right. whatever it is that the server is sending. Or it can um block an incoming request. So if you're sending a CSS file, but the browser browser already has it in cache because of a previous page, the browser can say, oh, hold off, I've got this file, Be, uh, let's get it over with. Um, and that's possible. The browser, even though the a lot of control is at the server, a browser can still manipulate or, or cool. deny a request.
0: And along with that, then is the request priority. Does that link into the server-side push, like saying what I, you know, like say I want requesting certain assets before others and things like that?
1: Well, request priorities are in the other way. So it's the client that is connecting to a server. Ah. We've only got a single TCP connection. So the the old days, you had your priorities by just sending, say your css file and then your javascript file you had an implicit way of ordering your resources but if you're doing it all over a single tcp connection you're basically firing all of your resources at the same time and you don't know in which order you're getting them back Um, priorities are used to have a bit of influence by the browser by saying okay i'm sending all of my requests at once but my css and javascript needs a higher priority than my images so you're getting them back in the ser- in the order that the web server is still generating them, and it can choose to either honor the re- the priorities that the browser has set, or just ignore them altogether and just send them every request that the browser made in one big file.
0: Cool. I mean that that's really interesting. Uh, th- that seems there's going to be a lot more kind of thought based on those kind of things, like what you know what what I- I should have the priorities at, should I use server-side push and things like that now, as opposed to the whole domain sharding. So there'll be a lot more different best practices that will come along.
1: Oh, definitely. I think, uh, especially something like server-side push and the priorities, they are two systems working together. We've got browsers that have become very smart about which resource to load first, but we've also got developers that know their project and that know which file should have been downloaded first, and they can work together. So you can push the CSS file as a programmer, but you can still have the smart algorithms in a browser determine that a JavaScript file is or is not more important than an image.
0: Cool. Uh, along so from there, we've we've got all these new, you know, all these new features. Um, for a developer, then now that they don't have to deal with the binary protocol; that they can still deal with them in you know in their textual representation as we would you know expect it within Chrome and things like that. Well, is there any differences there syntactically? Any language changes? Any header type changes? Things like that.
1: Well, that's one of those things that critics say the HTTP protocol did not change enough. Um. Everything that we know about HTTP one, all the all the methods, a post, a get, a put, uh, even all the status codes uh, for a four hundred four, a file not found, etc. Everything remains the same. So if you memorized all of the status codes for the old protocol, they'll still work for the new one as well. Um, and that is in part what critics so they wish that the protocol changed more because headers uh, in the way that we've been using them for twenty years have their limitations especially things like cookies um, if you try to parse the cookie field um, because it's pretty much a plain text field anyone can put any content they want it becomes very hard to parse if that were as well an entirely binary or just a new format the protocol could have done a lot more
0: how, how do you feel about that do you feel there could have been more do you feel that's like incremental steps small uh, small well large but small steps
1: well if we look at the fact that it took nearly 20 years to get this version out I'm glad that we just have a new version um and I also think that this version is a very good basic or basis to to rely all of our other changes on um the fact that we now have a binary protocol that we have a single multiplexed connection everything else that we do now http 3 4 5 whatever may come it's going to be a lot easier to implement because this change was a really big one it took 20 years to get just this version out but i think right now we're ready for version three four five whatever and that won't take that long anymore
0: well that that's interesting yeah is the release schedule more set now that we've got this version they're gonna start pushing out more incremental changes because of the how you know progressive this one's been
1: i'm not sure i, I haven't really been following any of the new specs yet um but It's this gut feeling. It's it's the feeling that everyone in the industry is happy that the HTTP2 is here now, that there is a foundation, a really good basis to rely everything else on. And I think that's going to push us to, I'm not saying we'll have a new version in six months, Um, I think two or three years we'll have a new major version. That's going to be rather compatible with HTTP2, but maybe that's trying to solve other legacy issues that we're still having.
0: Like the, as you say, like the cookie one, maybe, and things like that. And and you mentioned that that it is just a single TCP connection now. Is there any way of being able to tweak, like, uh, will that be the default now that you only, and you can get the same performance from using a single TCP connection with all these assets, or the browsers can intelligently open up more if they need be?
1: Well, the idea is that a browser doesn't have to open anymore because opening a TCP connection, um, is slow because of a simple method that TCP uses and it's called the uh, congestion window. Basically, whenever a TCP connection is made, it doesn't know that the remote side that it's connecting to can support small packets, big packets, or really big packets. So it starts off with very small packets just to be on the safe side. And every packet that it's sending back and forth, it tries to increase its window, its packet size. Which means that if you're down, the the biggest, um, the the easiest way to see this is if you're downloading a big file. It can start off at 10 kilobytes per second and slowly ramp up to your maximum speed. That's your slow, your slow congestion window that you're still working on. Um, which is being, well, excluded in HTTP2 because there's only one of those TCP connections. Um, a browser would be foolish to open more connections because in reality, it'll only be slower. Um, it's much more efficient to, keep using the existing TCP connection.
0: That's interesting, yeah, because you get that curve, don't you? Where you, they, It's almost like the browsers and, and the server are just trying to work out how, how fast they can actually work, and then eventually they fail, and then they're like, okay, we can stick there. And having that one TCP connection then means we can always just stay at that level, the optimum level for us.
1: That's exactly what it is indeed. Yep.
0: That's awesome. And, and, and with this then, so you've got, to, you mentioned the tools that you've used. Uh, I'm thinking like servers and things like that and things like varnish and reverse proxies. And how is the adoption there?
1: Well, that's where it gets a bit tricky. Um, we've had in our industry a lot of. Web servers that have pretty much been dominating us. Um, we've ha- we have Nginx, which is all around us. We have Apache, which is probably even bigger, um, and we have a lot of new web servers that are emerging because they saw the opportunity to implement HTTP/2 before the big ones, before an Nginx or an Apache. Um, so we have a lot of small web servers that act as a proxy, pretty much the same way that a Varnish or an Nginx could, um, just to offer HTTP/2. Uh, NG HTTP/2 is one of them. Um, we've got Gaddy, another popular web server. Um, and they're all just being the extra layer on top of web server just to offer HTTP2. Because Nginx now has built-in support for HTTP2. Um, so if you're running Nginx, um, and you're already running some kind of TLS certificate, pretty much enabling HTTP2 is just a one, one liner that you have to change. Oh, it's brilliant. super easy. Um, Apache, on the other hand, um, a bit more difficult. Um, Apache, if you're running an older server, is probably on version 2.2. 2. There's an experimental module that you have to compile yourself to activate. Ah. Um, exactly. Uh, even if you're on a newer server, you may be running Apache 2.4, uh, which means there's an official module. But most of the packages in distributions, so. It, say you're running a Red Hat or a CentOS or any of the, uh, the operating systems, there, there aren't built-in packages to run HTTP2 on Apache. Um, right now, the easiest way to run this is to run an Nginx server and have it do all the HTTP2.
0: Because I know that um, Speedy, uh, you, you spoke about it at the beginning, you know, was kind of a predecessor to HTTP2, and, and that had support in Nginx, am I right in thinking? Also Apache?
1: Uh, there were modules for apache but the same problem you had to compile them yourself right. and you had to keep them up to date there wasn't a really easy to use package um for apache and nginx has always been at the forefront of this um but even nginx um it took a long time for it to implement http 2 but i mean is um it took several months which in internet years is still a really <laughs> fast time um, but it gave a lot of others the opportunity to come up with a new web server, a web server optimized for the new web for HTTP2. Um, and I think Apache didn't really lose or Nginx didn't lose a lot of ground because of it. Um, but it was interesting to see how others took the opportunity to, uh, to invent a new web server just for this protocol.
0: It's always cool when you get innovation like that with a new thing coming along and you know, it's not the same old same old and new, new tech, as you say, new people and new technologies can kind of come in. Because I know that Caddy, I was looking into Caddy, and it's written in Go and like these things, and it's really interesting, and it's nice that you can kind of look into these and have different technologies.
1: Exactly. It motivates all the others to keep moving at a faster pace and just to keep up with it. Um Because Nginx, even though it supports HTTP2, it doesn't support everything in the new protocol. There is no server-side push yet in uh, Nginx, whereas ng-HTTP2 does have it. And if you browse their website, um which is a really cool trick if you're just... Wanted to get to know HTTP 2. Uh, they serve their traffic by default on the new protocol, and they also use server-side push. So you can experience if oh, you open cool. it in a in a network tab, you can experience what that server-side push is like. Um, there is no delay between fetching the page and then all the assets. It's just the page and all of the CSS files straight away. But that is something that Nginx does not yet support. Um, I have no idea when they would. They keep implementing new changes to HTTP 2. They they keep fixing bugs. So I think eventually. Um, it will come around, but when is the big question?
0: Uh, and one other technology that I'm a really big fan of, and I know that you are, is Varnish. Yes. Varnish Cache. Um, and I know there's been a lot of vocal kind of... Dis- not, <laughs> not not in, like not liking HTTP2 from the main... I can't remember his name, but the main guy is not yes, really Paul a fan. <laughs> yeah. He's not a fan of HTTP2. Now, does that mean that it's not going to come in, or is it just going to take a little while?
1: It's probably just going to take a little while. Um, it, Paul Henning is one of those proponents of HTTP2 because it did not fix all of the problems yeah. in the protocol. It's one of the, the biggest, um, com- contesters in, well, we should have done more, but Varnish at the same time is a realist. It, it doesn't, um, it can't say that it will never support HTTP2 because that is where the industry is moving to. Um, right now, when you're running Varnish, even the very latest version, there is no built in TLS. So if you want, um both Varnish and HTTP2, you're going to have to run some kind of proxy before it. Hat either Hatchi or Nginx yeah. or yeah, anything that has HTTP2 support. Um, however, there is uh, a plan, and I'm not sure which version, if I recall correctly, it'll be version 5, that is going to support HTTP2 in some kind of proxy method. So that if you want to run Varnish with a new protocol, and you're running Varnish 5, which by the way is not yet released. I'm not even sure if it's actively in development. Um, that will support HTTP 2. Oh, but cool, that is something that'll, that'll take a really long
0: time. Cause I know that TLS, I know that there's been work with the TLS stuff. You know, that was a, another, you know, kind of barrier that people had where it's like, Oh, I want to use Varnish. Oh, I still need to have NGINX in front of it. And there's something called, is it Hitch? I think it was that it's now like their own version of the TLS and it yep. just, yeah, cuts it out. Yeah.
1: H is indeed one of their, is one of these DTLS the proxy made by the same people that built the Varnish, um, tool. But it's a new tool. It's not built into Varnish yet. Um And indeed, it's one of those bottlenecks where you want the performance that Varnish can offer, but at the same time, you'd like TLS. Yeah. Right now, you have to use two tools, which means you have to manage them, which means that if something goes wrong, if a request fails, your debugging is going to be a lot harder. Because that's it,
0: extra logging yeah. all kind of working through the story of how a request and response works.
1: Exactly. And that's where knowledge, I mean, in-depth knowledge of the protocol comes in handy because you need to know what your Nginx is talking to your Varnish and how your Varnish is talking to your Apache. Um, if you can debug that, if you can see the, the flow of data, um, you can probably find out whatever it is that went wrong. But if that's not the knowledge you have, th- those kind of setups become really complicated and real time sinks where things just go wrong and you can't figure out why.
0: Um, and, and with that, then, so like, how have you, imp- have you, have you had a chance to implement HTTP2? Um, cause I know that you spoke about it in your blog that you've been able to do some fun stuff there. I'm just wondering in your day job as well, has that been something that you've been working on?
1: Well, in my day job, it's a bit tricky. Um, Nginx offers the new protocol, but they do so in what they call their mainline branch, which, despite what the name may sound like, uh, it's actually their experimental, their beta. <laughs> yeah, that program. does definitely
0: not sound like a experimental price, as it may. <laughs> no, you, you would think
1: that's their stable release, but no, that's, that's what their new things come into, um, which means HTTP2, yes, it is running on Nginx, but it's not a stable release. So I, we've been offering it to a couple of clients that have agreed to, well, the potential risk that is involved there. Um, not a single problem has occurred with them. In fact, they've been very happy. They see less TCP connections, meaning most of their websites just become faster, even without a single change to the website. Just enabling it meant that their data went through the da- through the wire faster, so everybody wins. But of course, the website isn't really optimized yet for HTTP2. Um, on my personal projects, I've been enabling it wherever possible. Um, been playing a bit with Let's Encrypt just to get some free TLS certificates. <laughs> um, and trying to benchmark what are the best practices because it's in theory, there are a lot of things you can do for HTTP2. Um, but theory and practice, they don't always, uh, meet hand in hand. So it's really just benchmarking and just testing what works and what doesn't.
0: That's it. Cause we've got years of back knowledge and, you know, history of, of the 1.1 protocol, uh, 1.1 version. You know? So yeah, it's, it's kind of going through that again with two and working out where the best practices and quotes can be. And what's exactly. now anti patterns and I was just wondering like because the trouble is now obviously we've got 1.1 and now we we'll will have two. It's kind of juggling because actually a lot of what was good to do in 1.1 is now bad to do in two and vice versa. Um, ha- have you been able to like kind of think about how you would do deal with kind of almost meeting in the middle or maybe even having just two different experiences per which can add quite a lot of you know dev time and kind of thought.
1: Well. It doesn't only really add I time, mean, it, it's really complex to optimize for both protocols. Um, yeah. If you, say, are running a website that does show business or anything, you've probably got a lot of users that are still on Windows, on the Internet Explorer, whereas if you're running a tech block like me, you're probably having a lot of users on Chrome and Firefox. Um, depending on your traffic, depending on the, the kind of people that visit your site, that should drive whether or not you can support a new protocol um, i even saw a blog post by the uh, cloudflare team which is a blog that everyone should read i think um, about even just dropping speedy in favor of http2 and they decided that's not even yet the time for it um, because wow. there are more browsers supporting speedy than http2 so even there there's a there's a the really difficult trade-off that yeah. you have to
0: make because i know that google have dropped speedy support haven't they yeah, indeed. Yes, yeah, so even they've got... <laughs> that's crazy. I mean, and I suppose, in your own opinion, then, do you, how long do you feel it's going to be? Is it going to be one of these things where people, it's like the whole PHP 5.3 thing, they're going to be using it for ages, and it will take ages for people to eventually adopt because of the fact that it's going to be a big switch?
1: I hope not, because 5.3 really is a big <laughs> big change for PHP. Um, but I fear for some sites it will be the case. Um, now, the good thing is, because the new protocol is TLS only, there's a really simple um, question you have to ask first if you don't have tls there's nothing to optimize you can just keep yep. using the old protocol if you're on tls or you have an interest in using tls there is no reason not to enable http 2 because even with domain charting even with inlining or concatenating everything into a really big file http 2 offers enough benefits just to replace your http 1 stack um, so even with no changes at all enabling http 2 is 99% sure, I'm going to make your website faster. That's brilliant. But that then then it becomes more difficult because why if you start to optimize for the new protocol, you will be hurting everyone that is still <laughs> accessing your site on the old protocol.
0: That is definitely it's that trade offs, isn't it? It is a massive trade off again where it's working out and it's so you say it's working out your own specific problem, your your specific client use case, and benchmarking and seeing yeah, exactly. where you can get there and yeah so there's still lots more fun that people can have with the, the http you know world they can still uh do a lot of stuff it's not just the silver bullet Oh, yeah. I,
1: I think if you're a beginning blogger and you need some topics to write about, <laughs> HTTP2 <laughs> <laughs> benchmarks is such a big, massive hole to, to, be, to be filled. Um, I think one of the biggest problems we'll be seeing with HTTP2 is, um, web server support. So if you're still on an old server, there are chances that you just can't get the new protocol to work. Um, and Internet Explorer. Um, yeah, it will I, always I, be
0: IE. Yeah. there is IA
1: although they, they did um, now or a couple of weeks ago announced their uh, deprecation of anything older than, I think, IE9. Um, so there is work in progress, but I think... Small
0: wins. Yeah, Small wins. <laughs> I think the new
1: protocol is only um, supported since Edge. I'm not sure if IE10 is supported. Oh, wow, support that's it.
0: scary, because that's only just been released, hasn't it?
1: Yeah, don't, don't quote me on that. I <laughs> may, Maybe IE10, I'm not entirely sure, um, but it, it'll require a really recent version of IE before HTTP2 is supported. So if you've got a lot of traffic from IE... You can still enable HTTP2. Again, it's more benefit than downsides. But I don't think you should be optimizing for HTTP2.
0: Well, thank you so much, Matthias, for coming on. It's been really interesting discussing this topic with you, like, you know, kind of having, you know, a really good exploration into this, because I, th- I do feel as you, like, you know, this is kind of the right time, similar to what you're saying, you know, with Let's Encrypt coming in and things like that, that people will be spending a lot more and paying more attention to this topic, which really is what they should be, you know, and they really should, you know, because there are so many, d- you know, different interesting things, you know, in, re- in regard to it. Um I'm just wondering, is there anything else you'd like to kind of, you know, maybe you know say like speak about discuss um like anything you want to kind of promote well i think we
1: covered pretty much everything there is to cover in uh, in the new protocol um if you haven't heard of http2 be sure to check it out google a bit um if i've got a lot of articles on my blog that say what's good what's bad about it um just make sure you're up to speed because this is a new protocol it's not going away um if you can enable it just go for it 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 requires tls so it requires your website to be encrypted um, which is always a good thing to have um and if just anything else to plug um i'm blogging at a very difficult url to pronounce <laughs>
0: but it's a great uh, url i do love the url and also your uh, email address well, i won't mention that but it's a great email <laughs> address uh
1: basically if you want to uh, get in touch uh, have any questions no matter what you can find me on twitter i'm at at @matthiasgenuer um, something that you can't write <laughs> at all Um, just I think check it will the show notes
0: well again thank you so much Matthias, uh, it's been a great episode and yeah audience, Um, we will speak to you next week, goodbye okay, Ed,
1: thanks for having me, take care
0: you've been listening to 3Devs and a Maybe, you can contact us at contact at 3DevsAndAMaybe dot com Or follow us on Twitter at the number three
1: devs and a maybe.